0: Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. I've been thinking a lot lately about civility. Of course, basic politeness and exercising good manners is essential. But I think civility, real civility, goes deeper. It means to choose our words carefully and thoughtfully in non-hurtful ways. It means to be respectful of how another person sees the world even when we heartily disagree. And to maintain a sense of humility because as a wise friend of mine used to say, we could always be wrong. These are lofty goals, which I practice imperfectly, of course. But that's the tone we strive for in these programs. Thank you for listening. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund.
1: It's the most miserable experience a child can go through. It feels worse than having a teacher be angry at you. It feels worse than failing at your schoolwork. Um, It's probably the most awful thing that you can experience on a day-to-day basis.
0: As schools grapple with widespread bullying, how can they do a better job of teaching kindness to kids? You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. It's hard to imagine getting through childhood without being picked on at some point, but a sustained pattern of bullying can be traumatic to a child who feels defenseless and overwhelmed.
2: Children who are victims tend to have low self esteem, to feel depressed and anxious, um, to feel uh, very uh, isolated at school. They have higher levels of absenteeism from school, higher Levels of complaints about headaches and stomach aches and that kind of thing.
0: Williams College psychology professor Marlene Sandstrom studies childhood bullying, which ranges from harassment to threats to physical aggression. The National Association of School Psychologists estimates that as many as 30% of students are either perpetrators or victims of bullying, and some youths are both. The most common targets are kids who are perceived as gay or who are disabled or overweight. Susan Engel directs the teaching program at Williams.
1: I had a kid, when I was lecturing on this in in Introduction to Psychology class, and there were like 200 students in the auditorium, and this girl came up to me and talked. She was a freshman at college, and she talked about having been bullied as a kid. And she said, I came home one day and said, I'm never going to school again. I, I'd rather, you know, I'd rather do nothing for the next 10 years than have to face those bullies again.
0: Bullying may be the most common form of violence in our society. And while many of these mean-spirited encounters take place in person in the schoolyard or hallway, increasingly they occur through the anonymity of electronic communication.
3: I'm an above-the-knee amputee, and which means that I use a prosthetic to get around or use crutches, Um, and often, I mean, since 7th grade, use both.
0: Lorella Praley is a political science student at Quinnipiac University in Connecticut. At age 2, she lost most of her leg in a car accident in Peru, where she was born. In middle school, after coming to the United States, some of the kids would taunt her using names like peg leg and border hopper. Then it started popping up in messages on her
3: computer. I would get into these conversations. Then I would block the person, and then another name would pop up. Um, you know, and along with that came profiles, right? And it would say names. It would be my name, um, gadgets, peg leg, location, border hopper. Um, you know, and then you would block it, and then another one would come up. Um, and uh, after about a week. Um, or a little, maybe a little bit longer. I printed. I would print out all of these conversations, uh, which is when I brought them to school, and um, you know, talked to the people at my school, and then the police got involved, um, and and that's how it, I guess, stopped.
0: Were you ever able to identify who was sending these messages?
3: Yeah, yeah. That, that I mean, I, that was common knowledge from the beginning it was a person in a year ahead of me. So this was, I was in seventh grade and this person was in eighth grade. So this was happening online, but she was also in my school. Um, And I have a very clear memory of going to school and the buses were lined up as we were walking out and she would start to imitate the way I walk. And I have somewhat of a limp when I walk. Um, And then screaming to me, just go back to where you came from. Um, And that was, I I think that was the hardest out of, you know, aside from feeling like I couldn't get away from what she was saying um, online, then I was also confronted with this at school.
0: In recent years, Lorella has participated in an anti-bullying program established in 1995 by the Anti-Defamation League, or ADL, it has helped her to learn about the problem of bullying and potential solutions.
3: I was embarrassed and um, to some extent ashamed um, and wanted to keep it private, right? So I didn't go home and discuss this with my mother. I wanted to just take care of it on my own and make it go away, which I think is co- it's, it's a common feeling by those who experience bullying.
0: I'm curious to know what your reflections are on, on why Somebody might be motivated to pick on somebody, especially, sure. especially somebody with a disability, in such a, a heartless way.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, I think um, also from ADL training, I've gathered that, uh, you know, they are struggling. So the bully isn't bullying you because he or she is happy with themselves or with their lives. Um, they are struggling with a number of things um, and they need to feel like they are in power. And in order to do that, there's this need to put someone else down. Um, So, you know, as as I think about it, um, I'm, I'm sorry that maybe I couldn't see that at the moment. I was very young and that I couldn't see that this person really needed help more than what she, you know, not so much that she wanted to hurt me, but that um, she was struggling with a number of things.
0: Lorella Praley believes in effective intervention by adults and others in the school community to protect children who are being intimidated and frightened. But she says that targets of bullying do not have to feel like helpless victims.
3: It's important to move away from um, hating or, you know, strongly disliking the, the bully. Um, and it's it's hard. It's hard to be the bigger person or to um, rise up to essentially what we're called to be, who we're called to be and what we're called to do, which is to to see others not for their weaknesses or uh, to recognize their struggle and to want to extend a hand. Um, and I think that is difficult. Um, when,
0: Even in the case of somebody who's sort of tormenting you?
3: Especially in that case, right? Right. Um, so I would say that it it makes you stronger because it makes you deal or with something that is sensitive for you or uh, from the beginning. So for example, like growing growing up with a disability um isn't always easy um and you have days when you feel really good and then days when you don't. Um so to be able to really work with that and appreciate that, you know, you've give, been giving this gift, essentially, um, and to take it and not see it as a disability, but as I like to call it, a disability, which is just a difference. Um,
0: I'm sorry, D-I-F-ability?
3: D-I-F-F-A ability, yeah. Okay. <laughs>
2: According to the investigation, the harassment occurred while she studied in the school's library around lunch period, walked in the school's hallway near the end of school day, and after school as she walked on Newton Street toward
0: her home. District Attorney Elizabeth Scheibel in Northampton, Massachusetts, announcing criminal indictments against six South Hadley High School students in March 2010. They were charged with harassment of 15-year-old Phoebe Prince a fellow student who hanged herself after being bullied for months. The incident led to passage of a state law mandating that educators report incidents of harassment and be trained in bullying prevention.
2: What I would hate to see, though, is that bullying as a problem becomes another binder on the bookshelf, along with the same the safe sex binder and the reducing and the say no to drugs binder, um, sort of viewing each problem piecemeal as a separate issue without realizing that actually a lot of the skills that kids need um, could apply to all of those different problems.
0: Williams College psychologist Marlene Sandstrom Calls for a deep analysis of how the entire social climate of schools can affect the complex problem of students who intimidate other children. And it starts with understanding the perpetrators.
2: One type of bully, sort of the pure bully that I think of as sort of the cold hearted, strategic, under control, calm, and collected bully, uh, is really sort of intentionally setting out with the goal of dominating other people. And I think what they're getting at, I think those, those children, they have a couple of characteristics in common. One, they have a very strong need to dominate, that they walk into situations looking to prove that they can dominate and control other people. They, uh, they tend to have very positive attitudes about what aggression can do for you. These are kids who believe that aggression is a great and useful tool that can get you a lot of the good things that you want in life.
0: Might makes right.
2: Yes, And um, for them, it often does. So they have good evidence that it works for them. And they tend to be very low in empathy. Uh, They don't seem to be able to take other people's perspective very well or feel what other people might um, be feeling. Um, And if you put all those things together, and they also tend to be very low in anxiety. So if you put all those things together, um, it's sort of the perfect storm for being very cruel
0: Sandstrom points out that some children fall into the category of bully victims, often kids with attention deficits who can be both perpetrators and targets of harassment. And another group of young people may not initiate bullying, but get drawn into it through peer pressure. Let's talk about how to design schools that will reduce the risk of kids being Bullied, what do you think would help?
1: Reducing the risk of bullying is wonderful.
0: Susan Engel of the Williams College Teaching Program.
1: But it goes hand in hand with something you want to um, increase, which is a sense of responsibility for other people, a sense of, you know, a commitment to kindness, to putting the needs of other people first, and a sense that community, uh, shared shared identity is as important as anything achieved by individuals within the community. And the reason I say that is because you sort of outlawing bullying or eradicating it would be much more meaningful and would be much more successful if it came in the context of these more positive um, attributes or commitments that a school could make. So I, I think really, for me, the question is, what could schools do to be kind communities?
0: So, what could schools do?
1: They could make this a priority. That, I mean, I think that you go into many schools where there's talk about getting along or being kind, but the great emphasis of the day is on attaining skills, um, doing in kids learning and being able individually to succeed at various tasks or pass certain tests, um, and. The community is only encouraged insofar as you're not supposed to hit anybody in the hallway. Right,
2: and it emerges. The sort of the talk about community is a more reactive than a proactive kind of stance.
0: Marlene Sandstrom.
2: So when there's a problem, then teachers start to talk about, well, this is a community, and how should we think about caring for each other? Um, so it's more incident specific than a way of living. I think in the in the school, and it's often
1: very rule oriented. Um, I was in a school recently of first graders. I was watching a classroom of first graders, and there was a lot of talk about the rules of conduct. and that it had they made a lot of reference to kindness, but those the, the kids themselves were
0: discussing. Well, they weren't kindness. really
1: discussing it. that's the That's the interesting point. The teacher was kind of setting out the rules, and the kids were being asked in various ways to acknowledge those rules. But then, when they were engaging in a, a show and tell activity, none of those things were really um, embodied in the discussion. So when there was a chance for kids to really listen to this one little child tell a story about his personal experience and where there was an opportunity for the other kids to be helped to think about what his life was like, he came from a very different background, or ask him questions or show interest in how his life connected to their life, that was passed over because it wasn't part of this sort of academic plan for the day. So I saw a real disconnect between those rules and and the activities the kids were
2: engaged in. I I think along those same lines, frequently when children get upset at school, which happens a lot, young children at school often face difficult experiences and they get upset, and often that I feel that that's viewed as something that we have to quickly patch up so that we can Move on to the skills that we're working on. Instead of recognizing that how to manage emotions and relate to uh, each other when we may not be feeling the same way about something is a crucial skill. So I and a guess,
0: tremendous opportunity to learn. Right. You're talking with Williams College psychologists Marlene Sandstrom and Susan Engel. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment about solutions to bullying, visit our website, humanmedia.org. What I
2: think of as a starting point is a school where um, learning how to regulate emotions and learning how to solve problems and learning how to maintain relationships with positive relationships with people, that that is on equal footing with learning about spelling words and that kind of thing.
1: And I don't think it's always a matter of choosing between a discussion about your feelings or a discussion about the subject matter. I happened just this morning to watch this amazing history class. It was a high school history class, and the kids were. It was a wonderful class, and the kids were had read about the French Revolution, and they actually were having a discussion about rules. Why a government imposes rules, and the teacher very skillfully brought it around to groups that they had at school that might have rules and what function the rules played. And the kids started to talk about how rules are a way that an authority can maintain order and when rules are about fairness, and when they're just about consistency and maintaining order. And although they weren't talking about, they weren't self-regulating in the way that you're talking about, and they weren't, no one was focusing on a particular kid and his or her feelings, there was a wonderful connection between the subject matter, which was the French Revolution, and issues that have to do with how they get along with each other, how they live together in a in a place with grown-ups. And I, that was very spontaneous. I just happened to trip upon it. But it was people should pay attention to that kind of um, class cuz there are clues in that kind of a class about how
2: how we could be doing things better. There's really multiple levels at which this kind of social emotional learning can be enhanced at school. The one one level is sort of at the level of individual children, helping individual children who are having difficulty with their emotions or recognizing their impact on other children. The second level is what you were talking about, actually content area that has clear implications for how we get along with each other and how we think about what's fair and just and what does respect mean and how do we celebrate differences.
0: You mean, for example, a story in literature where this yeah. would be explored?
2: Yeah. Uh, Civil rights leaders and all kinds... I mean, history is rife with all kinds of examples of... And fiction. And and fiction. Um, So there's the content piece of it, where you actually draw in from literature and other places content that clearly relies on these issues of uh, social and emotional skill. But the third level, which I think is really important, is actually thinking about how you structure your classroom and the way that you teach, using strategies that the scaffold and actually really kind of force children to use those skills. So putting children in work groups where they have to um, cooperate with each other in order to complete a task. For example, that strategy's been around for 19... since 1960s, 70s? Yeah. Early the jigsaw 60s, classroom yeah. or uh, cooperative learning. Um, insert you know uh, experiential learning, service learning, those kinds of things that the, just the way that children are learning brings all those skills to life.
0: Schools face intense societal demands. On the one hand, they're under growing pressure to produce academic achievement as measured by standardized testing, and on the other, to perform in an atmosphere often characterized by fiscal austerity. And according to Susan Engel of Williams College, this adds to the general strain of modern public education.
1: A lot of the ways we structure life in schools are not very conducive to sort of kindness, um, collaboration. Bells ring all the time and interrupt what people are doing and saying. Kids are, you know, sort of shuffled around. Rooms are kind of inhospitable.
0: A kind of a harshness to it. It's
1: kind of harsh, and it's arbitrary. Often, lunch periods, my newest pet peeve, kids aren't given a chance to sit and really talk over a meal. And or talk with adults. There are very few moments in many classrooms or schools for people just to have time with each other, particularly not just kids with each other, but grown-ups and kids to talk uh, and develop relationships. So a school that puts relationships at the center is going to be in a much better position to enact some of the ideas that we've articulated than a school that thinks of that as an after. Thought, you know, that makes that an afterthought, or sort of uh, you hope that that comes around the edges.
0: How important is it for the adults? in the school setting to actually model this behavior so that the kids not only hear about it, but they see it done maybe when it's even messy to do it?
1: Well, I think obviously it's very important for um, adults to model it. And interestingly... In the best of all possible, I mean, the really great educational leaders, whether they're principals or superintendents, not only want adults to be kind to children, to be thoughtful, to take their feelings seriously, to be attuned to what they're going through, but they want them to treat one another that way, and they, as leaders, whether it's, like I said, a superintendent or a principal, sets up relationships between faculty that are conducive to collaboration and kindness. So that means that this kind of value is... Is implemented at every level. Um,
0: and, and how consistently, in your experience visiting schools and studying education, are the adults in school settings, in fact, modeling these loving, kind relationships?
1: Hit or miss. Some are, and some aren't. And uh, I mean, I, I mean, is it
0: is there a, a a gap?
1: Yes. It would be very interesting if, when we hired teachers, we took this into account. How much how. And some principles, some, some some way of do. gauging
0: how much empathy yeah. they have.
1: Well, how much how committed they are to the, a sense of community. I mean, you know, you could be not that empathic. Uh, you're because people are born with sort of natural levels of empathy, I think, and I know it can increase through training. But but you take a group of adults, some are going to be more empathic than others.
0: I feel what you mean.
1: <laughs> we'll hire you then yeah. as a teacher. But whether you're empathic or not, you could. Be really committed to a school being a community, in your classroom being a community. And I would think that would be an interesting thing to look for
2: when you're hiring teachers.
0: Do you really think that the skills of kindness can be taught?
2: I absolutely believe that you can teach kindness. And I think the biggest, one of the biggest motivators is to have a a peer group where that's the norm. And I actually think most children are kind. There's always going to be a few kids that seem very hard to reach and have very sort of dark ideas about relationships and other people. But that's not most children. Most children uh, are very compassionate and eager to spend time with each other and happy kids with pro-social ideas. I think that one of the things that would make the most difference in terms of teaching kindness is for those kids to stand up a little bit more for those values that they already have. I think the way that schools operate now, the kids that are not particularly pro-social wield way too much power. Um, But if the group, the large, the pro-social group could could coalesce better um, and could realize that, in fact, they're the majority, they're the caring majority, that that would shape... The behavior of the rest, because all of us as human beings like um, to get reinforcement from other people. And if if you got reinforcement for being kind, you'd be more likely to be kind. Part of what bullies feed off of is the fact that they get too much reinforcement for being mean.
0: They get away with it.
2: Yeah, and uh, all of us have some control over that, over the kind of reinforcement that we give.
0: According to a recent survey, over two-thirds of students feel that schools respond poorly to incidents of bullying. With a large number of kids believing that intervention by adults is neither frequent nor effective, which sometimes leads to calamity like suicides by kids who can't handle being relentlessly harassed, Marlene Sandstrom.
2: Often it's sad um, but true that tragedy is sort of the window into opportunity, and that's what happened in Norway um, in the early '80s when Norway had a national campaign and really uh, reworked the way their schools functioned in an attempt to reduce bullying. That was in response to a tragic triple suicide. And if you track state by state when legislation is picked up here in the United States, it's often in response to some kind of tragedy or near tragedy. We are not a proactive society. That's right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do think it's an opportunity. Um, I think my hope is that... um, as Susan was saying, that we view it as an opportunity not so much to focus explicitly on anti-bullying, but as an opportunity to take a broader look at how we grow schools that have a real sense of community.
0: So tell us a little bit about what happened in Norway and whether it was effective.
2: Well, there was a psychologist um, from Sweden, Dan Olvaeus, who was one of the first psychologists to study bullying. It was called mobbing. And he said, I think what we need to do is take a whole school approach here. We need to get everybody on the same page, which means school administrators and teachers and parents and students and the the folks that are outside during lunchtime and the recess aides and the bus drivers, so everybody that's coaches, that's spending time with kids. And he went into all the schools in Norway and had kids and teachers report on how much bullying was going on, turned out to be quite a bit, He built um, classroom meetings where teachers spent time working with students on a regular basis talking about their social interactions, which fits in with what we've been talking about, about paying more attention to how kids relate to each other. Um, Increased supervision at schools, which is something that um, we really need to do in this country. There just needs to be more grown-ups spending time with kids, particularly in unstructured time. I think it's fascinating to notice that in, in, in American schools, often when in-between periods or when there's unstructured time, the adults quickly congregate with each other, mm-hmm. and the kids congregate with each other, but you don't see a lot of mixing. In, in Norway, there's a lot more adult mingling with kids, spending more adults spending more time um, with kids. And the program was, and clear consequences for children who were bullying other kids, and clear support for kids who were being victimized and follow-up. So it was a very comprehensive program that parents bought into, that teachers bought into, and it was highly successful. So the rate of bullying was reduced by half um, within a year, a year and a half of the um, beginning of that program, which is tremendous um, impact for a program.
0: Would would that other social problems that afflict our society could be halved so easily and quickly? williams college psychologists marlene sandstrom and susan engel you're listening to humankind i'm david freudberg studio recording by antonio oliart editorial assistance from thomas royal webmaster brian k johnson Special thanks to WFCR and WNNZ in Amherst, Massachusetts, and to Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shart Media.
2: To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website, where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. And our web address is humanmedia.org.
0: This segment on solutions to bullying is Humankind program number 154.
2: The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind.